0: Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heranga Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This is the second in a series of three online panel discussions on COVID-19 and the future of the New Zealand economy. In this session, the panelists discuss how to rebuild after a disaster, what sectors are likely to change forever, the implications for international trade and supply chains, and the economic lessons from Southeast Asia.
1: Thank you everybody. Welcome to the second in our series of three spotlight lectures, looking at the impact that COVID-19 is having on the New Zealand economy. This week, we're going to talk about how do we handle economic recovery? I'm Professor Alan Bollard, Chair for Pacific Region Business at the Wellington School of Business and Government, and I will be moderating the session today. Well, now let me introduce today's panel and all of them are senior expert academics from the Wellington School of Government and Business at Victoria University of Wellington. So we have Professor Ilan Noy, Chair in the Economics of Disasters, School of Economics and Finance. We have Dr. Eldred Kahia, Senior Lecturer in the School of Marketing and International Business. And we have Professor Sia Young. Director of the Southeast Asia Center for Asia Pacific Excellence. So last week, we talked about short-term economic responses to the COVID crisis. Well, that was last week, stuff's moved on since then. So actually that night, we had the end of the level three lockdown. And then the next day, the Reserve Bank put out its monetary policy statement and forecast that we were going to contract in the economy 22% in this quarter, we've never done that before, and they doubled their large-scale asset purchases program to $60 billion, something we've never seen before as well. And then the following day, the New Zealand budget. uh, We heard about a COVID fund of some $50 billion. It's the biggest stimulus ever in the New Zealand economy by far. So since then, some of us have been enjoying a sort of a new normal, actually most of the labor force is now getting back towards work some of us have even had haircuts since then and so this week we want to talk about two new questions about economic recovery we're going to ask can we avoid shutting off our economy from the world and we're going to say we're going to ask how should we think about this disaster and how we might build back so I'd like to go to Ilan Noy first. Ilan, how should we think about this disaster? How might we build back? You're an expert on disasters and recovery. What are you thinking? What are you seeing?
2: So thank you, Alan. Um, unfortunately, I didn't use the haircut. Um, but other than that, yes, everything is coming back to uh, semi-normality. Uh, I don't think we need to look at this as a very different um, recovery from other kinds of disasters um, the scale is is different for for the New Zealand case um, and of course the one big difference is the um, the global aspect of this which has implications for um, for New Zealand as well typically we think of recovery from disasters as something um, the, the framework we're thinking about is the built back better idea where we're trying to rebuild but we are trying to rebuild in a way that it is, um, that maybe improves on, on the status um, quo. Generally speaking, about when when we think about recovery, we need to think of three major components of the determinants of how successful the recovery will be. And that would be the extent of the damage. In this case, the extent of the damage to the economy is not because of the virus. It's because of the lockdowns. Um, so we need to think about what, what did the lockdowns damage in our economy so that we can um, we can recover, right? The lockdowns, for example, didn't really destroy any kind of infrastructure, so we don't, we shouldn't be really thinking about rebuilding infrastructure in terms of the recovery. Um, we need to think about funding. So the more generous the the recovery is funded, the better it is. That's, that's a general pattern that we observe globally. And indeed, as as Alan pointed out, we have a fifty billion dollar um, recovery fund, which is probably the at this point as far as we know a generous enough amount um, and we need to think about expectations as determining how successful the recovery will be so how likely we think that this event can happen in the future or if if this event doesn't really end soon enough so if we don't find a vaccine or a treatment in the next uh, wee while, what does that mean for uh, our expectations about future um, public health services that we need to supply and, and, and so on, okay? So that, that's the three main determinants of, um, of the recovery trajectory. I think we also need to think about what we want to aim in that recovery. And, I, and, and here I want to point out to three criteria. Um, safety, we want to rebuild in a way that, that in which this risk is not, will not emerge again. So we need to think about how do we build our systems so that we don't see another emergence of something like that. And there are thousands of others coronaviruses and there are thousands of other viruses that could potentially inflict similar um, damage. We need to to rebuild in a way that builds our um, economic potential for the future. Try to emphasize um, sectors and activities that have long-term sustainable potential. Um, And we need to think about fairness because we do observe universally uh, across disasters, including uh, pandemics, that the recovery is often very unequal and in many cases exacerbates inequalities that have previously existed. So we need to think about fairness, both fairness of the process of the recovery and fairness in terms of of the outcome so that we don't exacerbate uh, inequalities that are, have already been worrying us um, before the, uh, the event. I also want to note that there's a lot of um, forecasts that we will never live in again in the same world as we have before and this is the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. We will recover from this. Exactly the trajectory of the recovery, I think, depends on all the um, issues that I've uh, highlighted and especially how quickly we are able to resolve the current problem. We have managed to resolve it in New Zealand, but the rest of the world hasn't. And that means that some aspects of our economy cannot go back to normal at all. And that's especially true for for tourism. Uh, Eldrid will talk about trade specifically, trades in goods, um, but trade in services and specifically tourism services is not going to go back until the the virus issue is resolved. So that's a major um, determinant. Uh, but other than that, much of our economy can recover, even if the rest of the world is not yet able to deal with the, uh, with the, with the virus with the caveat of some sectors that won't be able to.
1: Well, thanks. thank you, Ilan. And um, Eldred, um, are we waiting on the rest of the world? Can we afford to wait on the rest of the world? What happens if the rest of the world isn't recovering? Can you take us through some of your thoughts? We do depend on international markets for economic recovery in New Zealand. That's always the case. Is that going to be possible this time? How are you seeing it?
3: Right. Thank you, Thank you Alan. Um, so there are, there are a number of things to think through here, but perhaps uh, before I get into some of those specifics, I'm, I might just want to talk about where we find ourselves uh, at the moment. Trade has been disrupted and disrupted in a very, very big way. I think as far back as I think February or March, the Institute of Supply Management ran a survey with uh, about 600 U.S. firms, and these are were relatively large firms, 10 billion doing 10 billion dollars worth of sales or more. Uh, 80% of them uh, reported significant disruptions to their supply chains, and this is two or three months ago. So the the full effect has not even sort of uh, come to play here. So when you try to when you start to aggregate uh, you know these individual challenges that uh, businesses have you'll see that the picture is actually quite uh, quite dire at least in the in the in the short term so i think the world trade organization projects that um best case scenario is world trade declines by 13% worst case scenario is 32% so that's quite significant and the fallout or uh, spillover from that could be could be quite a uh, you know uh, quite impactful and i think a lot of that comes to again disruptions in uh, in global value chains and the more interconnected we've become over the last 20 30 years uh, the more widespread uh, that that impact is so um just narrowing the, the the lens a little bit from sort of the global picture to the New Zealand setting i think when you transfer this or you start to look at the New Zealand context you start to see that some of these effects are you know starting to be to be felt we know we've lost uh, what the airline industry has lost 80% of its its cargo capacity uh, over the last three, four months due to, um, to COVID. Obviously, I take the moment to applaud, you know, the government and what it has done in trying to establish relationships with, uh, you know, stronger relationships with uh, Lufthansa and Emirates and trying to get them to uh, convert some of their triple sevens to, to, to carry cargo. Uh, Without that, we will be in a much, much more difficult uh, position. And I mean, obviously, New Zealand is already um, active in in, in that space. Uh, You also notice that um, supply chains, especially for food, have been compromised in such a way that there's going to be a mismatch uh, between demand and supply. So the product that's starting to move right now globally is product that was exported back in February and March. And it may not be the exact same product that somebody would have been importing on the 19th of May. So there's going to be that mismatch, so disruptions to inland transportations, uh, misalignment uh, of demand. So when you look at what stats New Zealand are projecting for our export sector, they are saying uh, the impact could be somewhere between three to 8%, and that's a decline. So three to 8%, but not so much China, right? This is with respect to our other export markets, but China is, I think we are currently very much where we've always been for this uh, for this quarter. So that's uh, a very interesting um, example in, in in its own right. So I think, uh, I guess, going forward, the third aspect here. I think I started by saying globally, this is what this is what has happened. Uh, then the impacts uh, for New Zealand. Perhaps what needs to happen going forward. I think that's probably the the, um, the more interesting uh, aspect of the conversation. I think I'll touch on. Uh, a number of points that uh, Ilan mentioned. I guess one is this is probably an opportunity to rethink um, how we've always done business as New Zealanders, New Zealanders. Um, Our reliance on food and beverage, quite important. I don't think that will change uh, in the short term or even in the long term. But I think the idea of changing our export mix uh, in a very deliberate and direct way is going to be very, very critical. Uh, A case in point here is... uh, the idea of weightless exports, what comes out of our high-value-added exports, and also our tech exports. I, again, an example here: the Teen 200 companies and what they have done over the the last few years. I think they are now they've now reached as a collective they reached they've reached 12 billion dollars um, in annual sales revenue, eight billion of which is exports. Uh, I think that's just 10 percent of our total exports. I foresee a situation, at least medium term to long term, where sort of um, successful export performance is going to have a lot to do with success of those 10, 200 companies. And I think it's also an an opportunity here to think about some of the challenges that our businesses have always faced, issues around technology uptake, issues around innovation, issues around having uh, skilled labor, and issues around productivity. Uh, With the $50 billion fund that you've mentioned, I, I would like to see some of that being directed to some of those broader issues, so that at least long term, when we come out the other end, we are in a much more solid position, uh, perhaps, than we were going in. So I think that sums up some of my initial comments.
1: Well, thank you, Eldred. Uh, we've got a lot we're going to pick up on there, but I'd like to um, next go to Sia and say, uh, we know we're very dependent on trade. We heard from about disruptions and supply chains and big challenges. Uh, the East Asian economy, some of them had to suffer COVID quite a bit earlier than us and have come out of it earlier than us, not all of them. Uh, and do we have anything we can learn from their economic recoveries, China, Southeast Asia? Seal, what are you seeing there?
0: Right. Uh, thanks, Ellen. Now, uh, let me quickly um, say a few words about Asia, right? So to, to start with, you know, uh, for New Zealand's uh, economy, right? Uh, Asia has about what, 12 of the 15 largest trading partners that New Zealand has. So in other words, you know, if we just don't look at just the uh, domestic economy, if you start thinking about uh, the day after COVID or even right now, as we speak, that we really need more trade, then we probably have to look at Asia uh, in many ways. Now, Asia has a very strange mix of economies, as we know. So basically, their responses are quite different, right? So, so we are talking about a lot of uh, Asian economies that basically uh, feels impe- or compelled, right? So, so like Ilan said, right, uh, a lot of damages in this COVID-19 is actually more about the lockdown rather than COVID-19. So so basically, a lot of Asian economies are basically sort of lockdown. Uh, reopen, relax, lock down again. So there's multiple waves, right? In terms of the many countries that has experienced with that. Now, in terms of the responses uh, that the uh, government has put across in that room, I wouldn't mention too much other than you know the fact that you know some governments are actually putting more money, like Japan, but others are actually putting very little money, like Indonesia. Un- until this morning, they only have forty three billion uh, in terms of their size, but otherwise. A lot of countries even China is not putting a lot of money uh, into helping their businesses. And in that room, I must say that you know a lot of businesses in Southeast Asia uh, in particular and in particular around China in some regions as well, they are very proactive right so so a lot of these businesses are not exactly trying to wait. Uh, for the government to help them right so because I will come back to that uh, in terms of the regulation that are put in place. Then if you look back right there's a lot of economic damages around Southeast Asia and as well as North Asia as well, so a lot of predictions are coming through as Eldred has mentioned that as well. Earlier right that basically there's going to be a lot of damages and as far as we can tell is that those East Asia economies that will grow in 2020 there will be somewhere around 1% at most, in other words, most of them will be contracting uh, minus. And there's this coined, uh, that's probably coined by the economies or a few other sources as well, that we are now looking at economies that are called 90% economy. In other words, for the most part, most economies that have experienced some form of lockdown in a partial way like New Zealand will experience at least a 10% contraction uh, in their economy. Now, uh, with regards to what are the challenges that's coming through, right? Um, basically, what you, you will see, for example, in the last two, three weeks is around Malaysia and Singapore, right? Where they have locked down, and then basically halfway through the lockdown period, basically says, look, less us because we just can't afford to take the bullet. For example, Malaysia would have just said that, you know, for a one day lockdown extension, right, it will cost them about 550 million US dollars. That's as bad as it is, right? So in other words, they decided, okay, the extended lockdown is not a great idea. Now, if you actually talk about post-COVID, Thailand has made some assessment to say that this is probably going to be worse than the Asian financial crisis Uh, in 1997 that caused the uh, sort of damage to the bar value uh, as well as the 2008 global financial crisis. So basically, they accessed this lockdown period uh, associated with COVID as being more damaging than those two crises, um, even though, you know, Elan has mentioned, right, they are not in different crises, but actually it seems to be more powerful on the economic front than the others. Now, our New Zealand business responses are not very indifferent from those that has been done in Asia, right, for example, service innovation and all sorts of things that come through quite nicely. I mean, in in some places, they are more innovative than others, of course, right? So our New Zealand businesses are doing quite well and trying to help a lot. But I must say that, you know, some regulation might or might not help uh, in many ways. For example, it is very difficult to regulate consumption. Say, for example, you know, you can't have the government having some regulation to say everyone has to start spending money and buy from businesses. So there has been a lot of um, observations in some countries around the fact that even... Uh, post-COVID, when everyone starts to be able to be relaxed from lockdown, people are actually not spending that kind of money. So there's a bit of a challenge uh, in those dimensions uh, as consumption continues. uh, We hope that consumers will be there. Now, um, just three bullet points to finish my initial comments is that one, there'll be a challenge around multilateral trade agreements. I must say that, you know, that might also mean that we are actually back on the drawing board, or well in fact, there might be a lot more interest to try to keep some of these multilateral uh, trade agreements alive, right? And that's because a lot of economies are struggling and they all look at each other and say, look, since we all struggle together, we better you know, start to do some more business together rather than just relying on domestic consumption. I think in a lot of markets, domestic consumption will be a challenge as I just mentioned just a minute ago. Now then, the second bullet point is around self-sufficiency. There will be a lot of uh, issues around whether protectionism will be there to stay, but Eldred has mentioned bits and pieces of that as well earlier, and basically, I don't think that's a major issue as we speak, right? So, a lot of countries will be thinking we probably should stock up some more medical supplies in case another kind of crisis like COVID-19 continues maybe hopefully not but in 10 years or so. so so there'll be issues like that there'll be discussions like that but very few countries can actually produce everything themselves or being very strong in some areas than others and finally just one quick bullet point about the asia economy is that i think you know we have ten- we got a tendency to actually think that asia is more manufacturing than services but actually if you look at the um in terms of their trade growth right in the last five years uh, in the asian economies most of them in fact they, their services growth is actually extremely high as high as new zealand's in other words services as a percentage of value add is as high as new zealand's in most of the uh, asian economies so that will be an, another avenue that we need to actually spend more time on other than those that you know Eldred would have your around know, food and beverages and technology as well there's probably more we can actually look into the service side of things. I must say that, of course, uh, restaurants and tourism might be an issue, but there will be other forms of services that we actually can provide, like technology apps or other things. And uh, that's all for now, Alan. In my initial comments.
1: Oh, thanks, sir. And yes, it's true that um, this is a bit of an unusual contraction in the sense that it's really hitting the service sector. And traditionally, quite a number of the previous business cycles and bad downturns hit the industrial sector and um, tended to hit more males in the workforce this one arguably hits more females in the workforce it is a bit different uh, so you yeah, you also talked about um, malaysia and singapore and their uh, shutdowns and then their concerns and possible opening up and then a bit of a resurgence elan with um, a, a lot of the forecasts the new zealand forecasts seem to be predicated around quite a quick bounce back recovery, a V-shaped recovery. But uh, that's also predicated on no resurgence of COVID here or internationally in a major sort of way. If there is, then presumably we're in for a U-shaped, longer contracting recovery or a W-shaped one where we go up and then go down again. Uh, Do your thoughts about this particular disaster change when you consider what that could do in the longer term, a much slower recovery than we're talking about, is there a risk of a Great Depression sort of event out of all of that? How do you think about that? the downside possibilities that are still out there? We don't know these things yet, of course.
2: So, first of all, let me point out, if we compare it to the Great Depression, the decline right now is bigger than the Great Depression. It's bigger and faster, much, much faster. Um, the increase in unemployment and this is true of almost any country, uh, while some countries have had very high unemployment in the, in the Great Depression, that took three, four years to materialize, while here we're talking about weeks rather than years. Uh, so the decline is equivalent to the Great Depression. How long it will last depends exactly on this issue of expectations and what we, we think will happen in terms of this virus and potentially other viruses that are, are lurking in the background, and there are, there are plenty of others, right? So this coronavirus is the third coronavirus that is hitting us uh, significantly after SARS and MERS. Now, whether whether we find a vaccine or a treatment, or we obtain herd immunity um, through the rest of the world, we don't know yet. I think the medical knowledge we have on this is, is very much limited at the moment, even though there is massive amounts of funding and research efforts going into it, uh, we're still far away from really understanding what are the, even the next three months, will look like in terms of this, um, this epidemic. So trying to predict whether we will end up with a V or a W or, a, or an L or a U, we can't really reliably. Um, we are in the fortunate position to be um, almost virus-free. Um, and is e- easily able to maintain that through um, very strict border controls, quarantine requirements, and very aggressive um, tracing. So I don't think that we will see that there is a very high high probability that we'll see resurgences here in New Zealand. But there is, of course, very high probabilities that we'll see resurgences in other countries, like we've seen in Singapore, for example. Um, so, and and that that will have an impact on our economy, but. Most of our economy doesn't depend on our relationship with the rest of the world. So a lot of our economy can be sustained internally as long as our ability to live our lives as a sort of a level one or two um, is not constrained by lockdowns. So in that sense, I think we can easily think of a V-shaped recovery, but not V that is quite gets you all the way to where you were before. um, What the economy is called the 90% economy Um, because there are still some sectors that are not going to be able to recover until I think the the world is either free of this virus or just knows how to deal with it.
1: So, yeah, Elan just said most of our economy doesn't depend on the rest of the world. Are you going to let them get away with that?
0: Uh, I would would let him get away with it, but then I think it's not a good idea that we just rely on the domestic uh, market. So, So it's probably a bit of both, but I... I agree with him that, you know, push come to shove, we can say we can close our door, but there's only how long we can close it before we have to open it, right? It's almost like our conversation with the Aussies about the uh, trans Tasman border opening, right? There will be a lot of pressure to open up.
1: So Sia, uh, you'll have observed a number of quite authoritarian governments in East Asia, um, obviously taking an approach with regard to the health side. But are you seeing them on the economic stimulus side, uh, and does that give uh, authoritarian governments a potential big advantage over more democratic ones?
0: No, I think I think the you know the the authoritarian um, governments are actually better at dealing with this kind of uh, healthcare crisis. <laughs> the economic one is probably the same as everyone else, so no, not much difference there. You know the kind of Packages that we have put across in New Zealand is probably the same as those of the rest.
1: Uh, Eldred, you talked about a a, a high degree of disruption in supply chains, and yet I'm hearing some quite interesting stories about how some factories are using artificial intelligence to really keep production right through the crisis, how there's some new technologies in supply chains that are helping monitoring monitoring inventory, for example, both in essential and and other services. And when it came down to it in New Zealand, we were all a bit worried about food and medical supplies and pharmaceuticals. They kept on coming in. Um, Could you say that actually it's been a a bit of success in terms of continuity of supply chains through this? And are we going to see now a lot of businesses rethinking their supply chains? Are they going to want to simplify it all? Are they going to want to onshore where they can? What do you think is going to happen in all of this? Or are we going to see big build-ups in inventory?
3: Great, Great question, Alan. That's one of the bigger questions of, of, of the day is, uh, what is the future of uh, global value chains? No, I think, I think, I think in principle, right, it's, it's easy for, for any government to say, oh, we can, you know, we can shut things down, we can draw things down, we can uh, you now we can onshore, we can reshore, we can aim at uh, you know self-sufficiency. We can try to reduce dependence on other countries. I think all of this is easy to um, to 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 pause, to try to suggest, but actually pulling it off is a lot harder. Um, take take for example uh, food. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, one in every five calories consumed in the world crosses national borders. That's not easy to rejig that uh, to to, to where, you know, everything has been uh, rationalized and kept uh, within a domestic market or within the control of one or a few countries. Same thing with pharmaceutical industry. I think this is one of the major challenges uh, and one of the major talking points in the U.S. at the moment that I think uh, 90 percent of uh, prescriptions in the U.S. uh, are filled using generic products. That is generica, generic drugs. And of those generic drugs, I think a third of them come out of India. And where does India get all of its active pharmaceutical ingredients? Out of China, about two-thirds come out of China. And again, I don't think these are things that can be switched or tinkered with uh, very, very quickly. So I think um, I, I tend to probably align more here with Ilan here when he says, we are going to see changes, but perhaps not nearly as extensive as we might think, we're going to see a lot of initial sort of knee-jerk reaction, right? We gotta do this, we gotta bring this back home, or we can't be relying on this country or on this stakeholder. But I think when the dust starts to to, to settle, I think we'll go pretty much where we've always been. I don't see um, value chains being changed, being reconfigured uh, completely. Uh, It has taken us years actually to get to, you know, configure some of these global value chains the way they are currently configured and reconfiguring it like with most supply chains, right? Doing the reverse, doing reverse logistics. Uh, the reversal is actually more, uh, more difficult than the, the onward movement towards, um, towards the, the end user. But to one of your points, Alan, about the innovations, the innovations have started to come in. I think one of the things that's very interesting uh, when you mentioned that is, so we've had challenges with the sourcing, for example, of uh, PPE. right? That's been the sticking point. But the distribution has been quite efficient around the world. I think probably SIA can speak on to, to some of these um, innovations that we've seen in, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, uh, you know, ways of trying to get the PPE to the end users, to the, wh- whomever they might be, trying to do that in uh, as quickly and as efficiently a manner as possible. So incremental innovations, yes, but rejigging of supply chains or value chains completely, probably not.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Just observations from um, other disasters. I think we are, um, if we look at other disasters, two observations that are relevant to what Andre uh, was saying. One is, um, most disasters do not lead to drastic change in in trajectory. If anything, they speed up things that that happen, that are, um, were happening anyway. So in this this sense, the robotization and some onshoring and so on, was happening anyway, and this maybe have sped it up a bit. The other thing, and this is something we haven't yet talked about, one way in which disasters can lead to dramatic change if they have an impact on the politics. Uh, And here, I think we don't really know. We know that the global financial crisis in 2008 eventually led to very significant political changes. We see that in in the United States uh, where we have you know, an administration headed by a stable genius um, who is redirecting the country in ways that would have surprised any anyone who predicted uh, the future of the United States. Maybe even five years ago, we see the uh, the UK going into uh, Brexit. So, how this will play out in the future in terms of the politics and, therefore, also for the economies of the world, this is this is the big unknown, and 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 there is there maybe lies. Uh, the big impact that
0: you are um, sort of referring to. Yeah. Yep, Alan, uh, I'm just trying to top up to the uh, viewpoint of Eldred's uh, a bit a bit earlier, right? So, so in the last say five years, there's been a lot of conversation around uh, challenges of some countries with China, for example, and so there's displacements of you know agreements, uh, displacements of uh, performing activities in China. So, for example. A uh, common, commonly uh, you know, cited example would be like shifting manufacturing from China to Vietnam. But if you actually follow Vietnam closely, um, they would admit that they don't have the capacity to actually take over from what China. When everyone leaves China, right? Uh, Vietnam just can't take the whole thing. So, so it's impossible to deal with it. And also, in fact, there's also concerns about whether they have actually the technical skills to do it as well. And and that relates to. Eldred's point, right? I think think the supply chain is probably harder to to rigid, but business model is possible, right? So, business model is actually sort of easier to fix or rigid in this kind of circumstance or circumstance that you have to deal with to adjust to your customers or or different consumption behavior. But at the same time, if you talk about trying to retool your people, right, you retool in any country of scales, right, requires about five to 10 years of investment uh, inside there. So so shifting manufacturing back to the US, like what they have been talking about, uh, it's not gonna function that easy. I mean, the same conversation will be starting in New Zealand, but I don't know, but uh, it won't be easy either, right, to try to send every manufacturing back home in New
3: Zealand. So
1: Eldred, will we be seeing that conversation in New Zealand?
3: It- I, I, I think we'll see that. And we'll see something that I think is even. Perhaps uh, somewhat, somewhat concerning, but we will see that. I want to touch on that first. I think we'll see that, that in New Zealand, but it will be, I guess, less animated than in, than in other places. But that conversation is, is definitely uh, going to start at some point. I think um, one of the interesting aspects here is for a number of New Zealand uh, brands that manufacture and export, right, exporting uh, manufacturers, there's quite a significant percentage of them that are still onshore in terms of their, their production, and they, are, they do it that way for very, very specific branding, strategic reasons, you know, uh, trying to, to leverage New Zealand Inc., New Zealand Story, Brand New Zealand. So th- that's the reason why I think uh, that conversation will be less animated, because we don't have nearly as much fuel and as much energy uh, invested into that type of dialogue compared to, say, uh, you know, North America or uh, parts of uh, Western Europe. But I guess one of the things that I was going to touch on that's quite interesting when you talk about just that, um, again, rethinking how we've always done things. I think one of the issues that I, that, that's going to jump out probably soon uh, is the notion of food miles, right? This has been around again with us maybe the last two decades. But I think this is going to come back up again when we start to consider, uh. You know, we think all of this food is local. We think all of this manufacturing is local, the sourcing inputs, but maybe not. And what does it say, you know, about us, especially as consumers? So that was, I guess, Sia's point earlier on about what role do consumers have in all of this? If consumers are really capable of uh, voting with their wallets, as we usually say, can they force a change? Can they force someone's hand in this sort of uh, large picture? But I think we will start to hear more conversations about that, about you know how much your um, you know bag of chips, your $1.50 bag of chips is you know contributing to, 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 to a worsening planet, so to speak.
1: So thank you. We're starting to see quite a number of questions coming through from participants, and the most the, the question that's got voted up the most at the moment is an interesting one. It says. To the panel, where do you see the comparative advantages that New Zealand will have being a virus-free safe nation? What impact could that have on our longer-term economic recovery? Uh, Could it impact on innovation, supply chains, business activity, export attractiveness, et cetera? Any thoughts about what New Zealand, could New Zealand have a relative or comparative advantage from this? So so, I think
0: you know, and and will would know this one as well. So basically, you know, basically, what what we always say, New Zealand is very good at, right? Health, um, you know, sort of clean, uh, food, nutrition, you know, healthcare and everything. Uh, what we are always good at is actually what we should play harder, right? So basically, we if we want to recover, and and I can tell you that the rest of the world they are actually getting worried about things like hygiene, food supply chain of food you know what kind of food they you know get produced and what kind of ingredients is being used and all sorts of things or, or how much vitamin c's are, are involved in whatever ingredients that uh, you know they have been putting inside the food consumption and other things so there's quite a lot of that kind of conversation that is already going on uh, around the rest of the world and it's something that new zealand has always been strong at so so it's time to sort of play the real trump card right without taking for granted of course the like,
3: you yeah, no, see uh, prob- probably more more of the same. Really, you've, you've you've covered it nicely. I guess that that idea of you know clean, green New Zealand, and then how food safety. I think there's there's going to be some sort of link there. We don't know what it is, but consumer perception of what constitutes food safety, and a country being you know virus free, a country being out of lockdown, a country being able to move on, and you know claim for the most part that it's gone through this and come out of uh, come out of it. Uh, relatively unscathed, so I think they, 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 there's a nexus there uh, that New Zealand can probably leverage going forward. Yeah, I other
0: than food safety, I think the other one is food security, right? So I think you know we must understand that a lot of countries is not self-sustainable. So so like Ilan said, we can be in New Zealand, but we must not take it for granted that most countries don't.
2: I want to suggest two other um, issues in which we are we have a comparative advantage as a result of the last few months. Um, One is we don't have the virus, so it's actually safe to be here. That provides a comparative advantage to several sectors. And, you know, the primary example for me is the tertiary education sector. Um, So we should be much more attractive to students, to international students, uh, in the near future than other countries. So if, you know, a Chinese student or an Indonesian student is considering whether to pursue a degree in the U.S. or New Zealand, I think now the, the decision is tilting towards us because we are considered to be, we are safer. Um, we, have, we don't have the virus. So as long as, we, as, as our government allows that to happen, and at this point it hasn't, uh, which I think is a pity, we can develop those kind of um, comparative advantages like tertiary education. And that could potentially lead to lo- long-term um, advantage. So if we can develop those sectors um, sufficiently, then that provides us a long-term economic base and tertiary education was already a significant export market. Um, For us, that could become much, much um, stronger. The other comparative advantage, I think, um, that we have emerged from this crisis, that we actually have decent politics and a decent government and government practices and, and, and a functioning um, society. And that has been reported globally all over the world. Every newspaper around the world has reported as, on the New Zealand success uh, in dealing with, with this virus. And that's, that's also an advantage, uh, which makes our, our market much more, um, much more attractive for various sectors and for various uh, industries. We, we need to capture those two comparative advantages so that it leads to further long-term prosperity for us.
1: Uh, That leads into another question we've got coming up here. So, Ilan, you might start on this. What opportunities do you see for building broader societal and economic resilience through this COVID recovery, things that would stand us in good stead for future shocks and stresses, including from natural hazards?
2: Yes. Um, So, as an economist, I think economists strongly believe that the two primary uh, building blocks for... um, for prosperity are health and education. Um, And these are two sectors where we need to invest more and now we have the opportunity to invest more because we have these stimulus packages. And those stimulus packages, like the $50 billion that you mentioned, Alan, uh, is an opportunity to pursue those, um, strengthening those sectors, both the health and the education sectors. Um, The other issue of course is, is climate change and the risk associated with climate change and with extreme weather events because of climate change. Again, we have an opportunity because we are investing, we need to invest so much now in the recovery. If we target those investments in, in the direction we want to go, strengthening health, education, and our environment, then we could end up with them in a much better position, which is a much more resilient position as well to deal with other types of um, risks, but seismic risk, which is, of course, in Wellington, is a is always um, something we think about.
1: So Eldred, um, do our exports look resilient? You talked about weightless and many of them are anything but weightless. On the other hand, they are food and are the primary commodity prices have been hit a bit, but not a lot during so far at any rate. Any thoughts about what a more resilient export base might look like?
3: So, yes, so if you are looking at food and beverage, we do know that this is where we are going to, you know, where, where the, the brunt of the impact is going to be. And again, for again for various various reasons, I was looking at horticulture the other day and the impact of uh, not having seasonal labour readily available. Uh, you know, some of it comes in via immigration, short-term immigration, and all of those other impacts that, are, that some of these sectors have to, have to, have to bear uh, you know, the notion of uh, perishability and now trying to compete for space in uh, very, very limited international uh, sort of cargo providers. So we know that for our uh, you know, goods exports, things will be somewhat challenging, if not very challenging over the next, maybe next half a year to a year. But it's again that notion of, it's not necessarily winning ourselves off of food and beverage, but it's just broadening the export base to try to include more of the weightless weightless exports, uh, more of the tech exports. I, I think the story of uh, New Zealand tech exports is not nearly as well documented, and I think there's perhaps another huge opportunity there to try to use brand uh, New Zealand to leverage off of that uh, and to try to showcase, um, you know, the successful high-tech firms, you know, five, six, seven, eight eight-person enterprises that are conquering the world. I've had a number of experiences working with some of them. And I don't think we do enough to showcase some of those. It's not always, you know, again, the 10, 200 that are at the forefront. There's a lot of very, very interesting startups in the ICT sector. And scaling for these, you know, the notion of scaling things up, you know, from a few million dollars to 10, 20, is not necessarily that resource intensive or that, ch- that much more challenging compared to somebody who has to be investing property plant and equipment like a traditional um, sort of food and beverage exporter. So I would like to see, you know, more in that space, more in terms of, um, again, those high value manufactured exports and more in terms of uh, weightless exports. And again, the, you know, the trend is looking good over the last two, three years. I think the, the trend is looking really, really good. Some of my earlier, points around TIN 200 and what has happened in that space. But I think there's more to be done. I foresee, again, an ideal situation for New Zealand's export competitiveness long-term will be a situation where that tech-driven export sector is contributing closer to maybe 20 25%, as opposed to about 10% where it's currently sitting at.
1: So, yeah, uh, what you're giving a lot of advice to New Zealand businesses exporting into Southeast Asia. Do they look very, very disrupted? What sort of advice can you give them at the moment?
0: I think many are disrupted, but I think at the end of the day, I think it's always good to just keep that conversation going. I said, you know, try to keep close to your customer. That's the only thing that you can do at this point. So some of the customers might require less Uh, From you, but at some point, I think if you actually close to the customer enough, you know, everyone has to write this out together. So that will be the general advice because the danger here is that we might find that, okay, we can't travel there. So we just lose them, you know, accidentally not in touch with them, but they are quite savvy online. So especially with those out there in Asia, very savvy, even things like video conferencing, like what we are doing today. So keep your customer very close as much as you can. That will be one of my closest advice. But try not to think that you know diversification of markets is actually a solution right now. Because I mean, diversification of markets takes time, right? It's not something that you want to do in the middle when you have a lot of other things to think about, right? So it, it basically says that you you just can't hop from one market to the other without investing in resources. You still have to invest in resources. So that would be my advice as well. i to diversify immediately, right? Just try to write this out.
1: Thank you. I've, we're reaching towards the end of our time. Um, you're all uh, teaching students at Victoria University and you time to time set them essay topics. But I want to set you a topic. Could you answer the following? Uh, following the global financial crisis, and the world's slowdown, and the growth of economic nationalism, and the growth of us China trade tensions. COVID-19 looks like it may be marking the end of modern globalization as we know. Please comment.
2: I um, First of all, before I answer your um, question about whether we enter the era of end of globalization, I want to pick up a question from the uh, audience because that was the one that got the most votes, and that is about reducing income inequality um, or reducing inequality in general. I think it is important to realize this is a shock, but shocks are also opportunities. And we need to, and especially there are opportunities because the government is is heavily involved in recovery from shocks. And if, if there is one thing we see from this COVID-19 global crisis is there is a huge difference in terms of the ability of governments to deal with this. Um, and there is a, a very important role for government. Um, so, it, it, And that, that means that there's also an opportunity here um, for, for better um, governance, and that's of course is also where the risk is. Uh, in terms of the question about globalization, is this the end of the era of globalization? The, the Economist last week, that, that was their thesis, that, that this is the era of hyper-globalization. Um, but we're not going to see an end of globalization, but we may and maybe hope for uh, a more rational um, globalization that involves a lot of the benefits we associate with globalizations. And there are a lot of benefits from globalization. We should definitely don't strive, shouldn't strive to produce cars in New Zealand, for example, uh, we don't have the capacity and we shouldn't try to think that we do. Um, but there's are some, some aspects of globalization that have, been, that have been damaging, and the most obvious one is, is to the climate, um, and, and hopefully we will, we will end up out of this crisis in, in a situation in which we are still globalized, but not globalized at, uh, at any cost, and we, we do that um, in more, more rationally and more cautiously than we maybe have done before.
1: Thank
3: you. All right. Yes. Um, so yes, um, questions about the end of globalization will probably always come up when we have uh, something of this sort. But I think I am on the, again, same side as Ilan here. I don't think we are anywhere close to being, you know, at that, uh, at that point where we can talk about the, the, the end of globalization. I'll just bring two examples up here very quickly. One, um, as of uh, last Thursday, um, the World Trade Organization had received 126 filings from member countries, and most of those filings were uh, associated with with COVID-19. It's quite interesting what what countries are filing about. Um, some countries are saying, "Yes, we are putting export restrictions. We don't want to export. We don't want, uh, you know, businesses to export one, two, three, four, five, six products." because we think these products are of strategic importance. On the other end of the spectrum, you have countries that are saying, you know, we want to have a trading system that enables us to import all of this, you know, product of strategic importance at zero tariff or without any hassles. So you almost have, um, you know, a shift in in, in ideology here, where the exporting country or the would-be exporting country is saying, oh, we might come up with tariffs to restrict exports. And importing countries are saying, "Oh, we are willing uh, to get products of, of of any sort to help us through through the um, through the through the challenges." So I think globalization will continue to evolve, take different forms, but it will not be any close to ending. Uh, and one more example, again, uh, while I'm still on that, so I think Russia has got um, a ban at the moment on exports uh, for wheat. I think it's going that ban extends up to to the end of um, end of June, so June the 30th. It's that, that ban has taken about, what, 7 million tons of wheat off the global market. So on one hand, you have that ban, but on the other, you have a few EU countries and also Australia that have come in and said, oh, actually, we can increase our exports and offset that. So when I look at this, I say, okay, globalization does exacerbate some of the challenges society, societies face, but in a lot of cases, it's also the solution.
0: Thank you. See ya. Now, can I just okay. add on to El, about the, uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, you know, run at the uh, WTO. But I, I think that's where a WTO is not an organization can really order a country to give up what they need themselves. So, so they can't say, look, you promised a trade. So, guys, sorry, you don't have enough medical supplies, but you still have to give it to me. Right. So, so, that's a bit of a challenge, and I don't think that will go anywhere near. So with regards to uh, Ellen's assignment, um, I guess my, my quick answer will be, you know, this is probably the start of the revolution of globalization. Uh, I think the fact that 200 of us are here and m- most of us are probably in different locations is not something that we do very often in the past before COVID-19. I must say that we do it much more often these days. And sometimes I find myself having to stay up at about 1 a.m. just to... Uh, talk to the European friends uh, just to keep it alive, right? So so I must say that we globalize in a different form uh, moving forward. And in fact, that really comes back to the other bullet point and my final bullet point, and I apologize in advance if I say something that some of my colleagues at the university doesn't like, uh, it's the matter of fact that, you know, this disruption like teaching online is basically something that customers has always wanted or a particular set of customers always wants from tertiary universities. So so the fact that we are pushed in that direction by COVID is not something that we don't expect to come. It's the matter of fact is that COVID-19 just makes things faster, as in, you know, basically we are three years in advance of being pushed into a lot more online teaching. That's all. That's the difference there. So, So in some ways, globalization is accelerated and in a different form as well.
1: Thanks. Thank you, Sia. Thank you, Aldred. Thank you, Ilan.
0: To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria
3: University of Wellington, Hi, rā.